This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Welcome back to The Right Hook. Uh, this is Barry Kenny in for George on this Bank Holiday Monday. And being Monday, it's time for uh, technology. Jessica and Jonathan are away enjoying their Bank Holiday, but Stephen O'Leary, who's media analyst with O'Leary, O'Leary Analytics, has kindly agreed to take time out from the long weekend to discuss some of the latest issues from the world of technology. Thanks very much, Stephen, for coming to us. Um, interesting one, and I suppose one that's of, of relevance to a lot of people who have smartphones, expensive smartphones they've spent money on. Uh, yesterday, Guardian carried out a search of residences in Talla and the North Circular Road as part of an, an investigation called Operation Ockram into the activities of an organised criminal gang uh, who specialised in the theft of mobile phones. And they found phones, they found laptops, they found cameras, sat-nav, SIM cards, ATM cards, uh, you name it. I mean, it's quite clearly a huge problem and we all know somebody or, or are somebody who has had a phone taken or, or stolen. What can you do? I mean, what can you do before a phone is stolen? We'll get to what you can do after it uh, to, to ensure that you can you can trace uh, your phone. Yeah, the, the preemptive steps are probably the, the most important thing. I mean, like you say, I think we all know if, if it hasn't happened to us, we all know somebody mm-hmm. um, who's had their phone taken. One of the most, uh, it's bizarre, it probably seems quite obvious, but um, there are still an awful lot of mobile phone users who don't necessarily do this. One of the most obvious things to do is to set a passcode um, on your phone. Um, One of the big fears when someone loses their phone, obviously they're expensive um, and they're sophisticated pieces of technology, but it's the data they contain is usually of most value. Um, You know, there's photographs, there's text messages, there's emails. There's access to all of our social media accounts in, in lots of cases. And indeed, at the moment, people have access. There's some security on them, but there's banking apps and things like this as a, well. A whole host, yeah. And, you know, the the biggest thing really is that when that phone is, is taken, um, you know, or stolen, what you want to be able to do is make sure that whoever gets their hands on it um, can't access the information on it. And the very first step um, is a is a passcode. Um Someone was asking me, I was talking to someone a little earlier in the day about this, and they said, you know, one of their frustrations is that if someone finds it and it's locked, how can they contact the the person who who owns it? And that's one of the reasons they didn't set a passcode. And it was a a pretty legit argument. And I I talked to a few people, and one of the best suggestions I got back was that you should set your um, screensaver, so the image that pops up, as a message with an alternative contact number. All right, very good. So that when you press the screen and you're asked to put in a code, what you see in the background is... If you found my phone, please call number X and, you know, potentially offer a reward or something like this. It's a very simple idea and it probably doesn't the most attractive looking screen save you (laughs) have. But if it it means that the person who finds your phone can um, get back to you. That beautiful sweeping landscape can go and... uh, Yeah, yeah. and you can put something more practical in instead. So so that's certainly one idea. There's also um, an awful lot of um, software options to track your device. Um, so if it's a case that you have lost your phone as opposed to it being stolen or if in the rare case the person who's stolen it hasn't turned it off immediately unfortunately that's usually what happens right. they the, get the, the device the, the professionals are switching the yeah and within 30 seconds the phone has been um, has been turned off but sometimes what can happen is you can leave your phone somewhere publicly and forget about it and it may sit in that place for half an hour or an hour and if you have one of these tracking um, system set up um, I mean with the, certainly with the iPhone there's a find my iPhone function that comes as standard mm-hmm. um, you need to set it up um, through iTunes um, but Android devices have all got similar things Blackberries as well uh, that's probably another very very um, easy step to take to make sure that you can track where not just your phone but also your tablet and other sort of um, devices that have got a SIM card in them to see where they're going they're probably the top two steps um, that you want to take 
There's also um, a functionality that um, most smartphone operators allow you to do, and that is to wipe the data remotely. Okay, right. So what this means is that uh, every time you connect your smartphone to your laptop or your PC, um, it will back up all yeah. of the information. And what you can do is if you if you realize, if you go from that moment of, I'm not really sure where my phone is, to I'm pretty sure someone doesn't have it. And quite often that's when you go to call it. And even though it had a full battery an hour ago, wherever yeah. it was, it's now it's now been switched off, and in those cases, um, try to take steps to um, remote wipe all of the information. Those are probably the best preemptive things to do. There's there's a code. Uh, I, I was quite recently there was a lot of publicity about this that you can, you can type something in and it, and it brings up a code on your phone. I wrote down the code and apparently this is uh, useful as well. I'm being very non technical in asking you about this. I, I wrote it down. I can't remember what it's called. So if I actually ever have to go and look for it, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. But uh, uh, there is a code you can enter into any any phone to give a serial number that will allow something to be shut down remotely. Or, or am I completely getting that information? No, not that? at all. I mean, you know, obviously when in, when anything is stolen, um, you should contact um, or contact the Gardaí and report it stolen. Is obviously. it the IMEI number somebody has just uh, texted? Or? Yeah, that, that could well be it. Yeah. Um, I, I know certainly if you contact um, the manufacturer, so if it's Apple or Samsung, whoever it may be, and um, you do report the actual serial number, um, they can prevent it being used on other networks and in other ways. Unfortunately, for a lot of criminals, there are now workarounds for this. And invariably those who want to hack and get at um, information on devices can find workarounds and can find ways to get to it. But for for the average person who maybe takes a phone, there are lots of steps that you can take to ensure that your information remains safe should it fall into the wrong hands. Yes, maybe this is why Enda Kenny famously still goes around with an old Nokia that only phones and texts so that he can't yeah, actually fu- get Yeah, functional. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned technology and how technology is, is, is developing all the time. If you have any technology questions, you can text 53106 uh, Stephen O'Leary, media analyst O'Leary Analytics is with me here uh, for the Monday Tech Slot. But 3D printing is something I suppose I, that has been talked about for some while and at first I couldn't get my head around what do they mean by 3D printing. And I, I you know, slowly it's, it's seeped into the consciousness but I think it has really kind of hit home to me the potential of it when I heard that the world's first 3D printed handgun has been successfully fired in Texas. That's not particularly surprising that, it, that Texas is where, where it is. I mean, before we get into the rights and wrongs of producing a, a, a gun at home on a printer, uh, explain to people who wouldn't be familiar with it, what is this all about 3D printing? Um, it's revolutionary, really. I mean, it's, mm. it's going to transform um, the way we... Um, uh, we do almost everything um, to do with physical objects. Um, essentially, what it means is instead of um, you know 2D printing, essentially what you print on a piece of paper, which is probably something that everyone is now familiar with, the idea of typing onto a screen and then printing out a piece of paper or an image afterwards. It's taking that concept and instead turning it into or producing a 3D object. Um, so you actually have you know a physical cup in front of you. You have um, a table, a chair. Um, in the medical devices area, there's fascinating things coming out in terms of being able to replicate things like bones or joints um, that are absolute replicas of the the existing bone or joint um, within uh, the, the maybe the patient in question. There's really, you know, if you can imagine holding an object or seeing an object, then in theory, in time, it is going to be able to, uh, you will be able to actually 
print or reproduce one of these items. And I suppose where it really uh, will, will be of strength is if, you know, trying to produce maybe kind of you know, mock-ups, prototypes, this type of thing, or, or visual representations of something that maybe isn't being mass-produced yet, and that anybody would be able to do this with a 3D printer, which are going for, what, about 4000 at the moment? Or? The, there's a, a huge sliding scale in terms of costs, but the big thing is that they're dropping dramatically, and it's forecast that within the next 12 to 24 months that these um, 3D printers will be available uh, you know, at a retail cost of less than $1,000. And when that happens, when it, when it gets to the stage where we can actually have these in our homes, um, the reality is for kids who are um, you know, starting school in three or four years, for them, reality, that they will, they will expect if they can imagine something and they can um, draw it or, or create a representation of it and code it into a computer, that within minutes or hours they will have an actual physical representation of the object um, in front of them. I mean, I mean, it's wonderful technology. It's also borderline terrifying when you hear it. I mean, there's a company called Defence Distributed, and I say they have produced this, uh, all 16 parts of a controversial gun, which is called the Liberator. I'm sure Michael Graham is probably downloading his at the moment. Uh, and they're made from a tough, heat-resistant plastic. And so it uses this plastic to layer over uh, the 3D printer in terms of producing all the various parts of the gun and then they have one uh, non-functional metal part uh, which can be picked up by metal detectors but everything else can go through scanners can go through everything so I mean I suppose it's always the sign of a technology that truly is uh, becoming uh, adopted and, and, and coming into the mainstream is that people start using it for illegal means or, or this is necessarily illegal but certainly for nefarious means yeah, and I mean, I suppose it's an area that the law is probably going to have to start catching up with, really, because, you know, if if we are this close to being able to produce any object, you know, um, you know, be that a gun or, or anything else, then there are going to have to be measures put in place to try and, um, I suppose, safeguard against um, people getting access to devices which in the past they potentially wouldn't have. And guns are probably a pretty good example of it. And there's been an awful lot of talk, particularly in the US media, um, over the last 24 hours about this story um, and about the, uh, the the area around it. And, you know, there's obviously a, a large element of fear as well. Um, the one, I suppose, thing is that, you know, the potential for good with 3D printing technology I would imagine far outweighs um, the the negative consequences of it, and I think it's as we see, particularly maybe in the medical devices um, area, where the costs of replacement um, parts for humans essentially is yeah. going to drop dramatically. And also, if you imagine, you know, now where we live in a society where if something breaks, we tend to just throw it away and replace it with something new. Um, in theory, what we'll be able to do now is when something breaks, you know, a tiny part of yeah. maybe um, something mechanical we'll be able to go to the 3D printer that we've got in our house or we'll go around to the local 3D printing store, which will be, you know, there will be multiples of them across cities. And we'll go in with um, a code or a file. Yeah. And within minutes, they will, or hours, they'll have produced an exact replica of the part um, or piece that we need that we can then take home and fix the, the device that was so broken. So the, the repairs and spare parts industries will be facing the same kind of challenges uh, in terms of uh, that you've seen retailers like the HMVs, like DVDs, CDs, sellers, booksellers yeah, uh, I mean, in a different way. There's tremendous opportunity around this. I mean, there's, there's actually um, there's one uh, company, Fabsy, um, who uh, James McBennett, um, a guy from Dublin, um, is involved in, and he's got a, an amazing project at the moment where they've produced um, uh, the parts, three or four parts for flat, flat pack furniture. Right. Um, and essentially, what you do again is you can uh, you contact the company and you give them the the 
I suppose, the dimensions of the piece of furniture that you want built. Um, and instead of them shipping out the parts to you, uh, they send the file to the local um, printer in your area and the piece is just made there, custom right. for you, and you pick it up. So it, it has the potential to revolutionize not just the idea of throwing stuff out and, and getting replacements, but the whole logistics of delivering products, you yeah. know, that in the past, like you say, you might have had to build a thousand or 10,000 units, um, maybe in Asia and get them shipped across and then see what they were like. Now you will in minutes or hours be able to produce a prototype of something and refine it constantly until it's absolutely right. A listener has texted to say that the easiest way to explain a 3D printer is to tell people it's basically a replicator from Star Trek, the next generation. <laughs> there we are. Uh, that does bring it home. Uh, also on 53106, uh, relation to smartphones, uh, a smart Samsung Galaxy S3, and I can log on to the Samsung website and see where it is via GPS. That's what you mentioned, Stephen, yeah. in terms of, of that functionality that smartphone providers have. If someone steals my phone, I'll email the guards uh, a UPD. And, or an update, maybe that was meant to be, I'm not sure. Um, and it's an app on Android that allows users to wipe data on the phone by a simple text message called Auto Wipe Free. And also Mick and Kerry has an iPhone 4. Uh, he took a photo of the IMEI, etc., or his IMEI code and emailed it to himself so he can access it anywhere if the phone is lost. He's iCloud too, so he can delete data from the phone according, uh, accordingly and it has backed up all his addresses, emails. So Mick has obviously put the, the preparation into that. Yeah, side. and it's a really good point actually and it's probably something that we probably should have stressed earlier. It's the idea of backing up your information. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's invariably we think of it when the device is stolen, but, you know, it can be a very, very simple step and if you have that backup, it makes getting the replacement um, device an awful lot easier when you can essentially just have exactly what you had before before it was lost. So when I hook up the iPod to the laptop and it starts doing all those syncing of files and backing up and I say, well, why is it going through those apps when uh, I just wanted to get the music? I should actually be quite happy that it's doing that. It's taking yeah, and, and actually in relation to apps too, it, it probably makes an awful lot of sense to make a list of the apps you have, particularly maybe social media apps and banking apps and things like that that you have on your device. And the passwords are the passwords associated with them, because if they auto start with the passwords in place, they may be passwords you want to change if you access the um, social media sites from other areas. We've heard a lot of, I suppose, some of the more uh, prevalent uh, social media providers uh, of late. Facebook famously, we're free and we always will be. And they've started this little experimentation uh, recently in terms of uh, charging to, to access maybe celebrities or, or, or people who are popular uh, on Facebook. But YouTube, uh, you might soon have to pay to watch videos on YouTube. What are they planning there? Yeah, this has been, I think it's been in the pipeline for, for well over a year. And I think the success of services um, like Hulu or Netflix particularly, I think, which is probably something a lot of listeners are becoming more familiar with, has led to um, YouTube looking at the idea of charging people to watch videos um, on the site. Now, invariably, there will be an immediate kind of backlash to a story like this. And it's kind of like, well, you know, it's always been free. We're certainly not going to start paying for it now. And in reality, 99.9% of the content on YouTube is going to remain free. Mm. You know, because you couldn't charge for it in the first place. <laughs> precisely, yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing sort of when a picked or when a video of a cat falling over gets ten million views. Um, when it's free, it's very different. If you start sort of saying, "Well, we want you to pay two cent or five cent or ten cent to do this," what YouTube are suggesting instead is that they're going to have channels, um, almost I suppose in the same way that you would have um, on a, a television, but it's the it's absolute on demand. So what I expect to see and what we will probably hear announced officially in the next couple of weeks from YouTube and perhaps sooner than that, given the stories that are breaking today, um, is that 
uh, major broadcasters will probably start signing deals with YouTube and make start making content available um, through subscription channels. Now, we've no idea how much it's going to cost. Um, you know, some insiders are saying that you know subscriptions will cost as little as maybe two dollars a month. Um, but what you'll probably start getting access to is a lot of back catalog material, so old copies of shows, old copies maybe sort of from the 60s, 70s, 80s, right back. Um, and for people who've got an interest in you know, I suppose high quality content, um, they'll be able to get it um, through YouTube, through this paid for our model. Because we were talking about this in relation to um, Netflix uh, last week, uh, particularly in relation to the Extravision story. And the question came up, well, why would anyone um, use Netflix if you can get the stuff illegally online? And it will probably be exactly the same um, with YouTube. If you can, you know, if the amount is small enough and the cost is low enough and the quality you get of the content is much higher and you don't have the risks of of spam or viruses or anything else, um, I expect to see sort of YouTube channels becoming well. And the other thing too is that, you know, they're, they're trying like every um, social network to experiment with new revenue models. Yeah. So currently, you know, you make your, your money essentially through advertising. Um, this is going to be a very different way and it may it may be that in the future what you'll get is a choice. You you can watch the video that you want to watch um, but you have to sit through two or three pre-roll um, uh, videos or, or adverts uh, to yeah. start with or you can have this subscription model where all of that is cut out but instead you pay an actual fee to access YouTube. Uh, and you're suggesting there that it's kind of it is the channel or it could be the channel for broadcasters to fight back in, if you like, against Netflix or maybe just to have a, a competing model, maybe to, to keep Netflix honest, as it, as it were? Yeah, I mean, the, the, how the actual model will work, I suppose, remains to be seen, really. But essentially, it'll be about generating revenue from content and from rich content that they've got. And there's a lot of people experimenting, not just in, uh, I suppose, um, in TV, but, you know, across all mediums in the media at the moment, they're trying to find new ways to generate revenue from the content they're creating. And this is just one other way that YouTube are experimenting with. And it is like the one thing that needs to be stressed here, too, is it, it is an, exper- an experiment. We don't know if it will work. Um, but the success of um, Netflix and Hulu and other services like this would suggest that there is um, demand and a willingness to pay for um, content um, that is provided in the, again, it's ease of use. Everyone, you know, the vast majority of people know how YouTube works. Mm. A lot of people have got YouTube accounts. Um, if you can just integrate into that experience uh, a paid-for version where they can get um, richer content, um, then I would imagine it will be a success. Uh, I'm not sure if James Conroy from Mayo is yanking our chain here or not. He says, look up 4D printing. It's mind-blowing. Is there such a thing? <laughs> if there is, I haven't heard of it <laughs> fair yet. Enough, fair enough. You know, maybe that's, you know, like the old smelly vision years ago where you could scratch something uh, as you're watching and get the order. Uh, and also, surely the IMEI just blocks the phone from making phone calls. I don't think it deletes data, uh, a listener asks. No, I, I think what you need to do, though, is it's a way of identifying your device. So when you contact um, the manufacturer um, or the guardie that they've actually got a record of, what the device is and there's certainly ways to track um, a device um, connected with codes like that so any information like that um, you know should definitely I think the suggestion of one of the listeners of taking a photograph of it and having it in an email um, so that they can access it at any time um, should they lose their phone is probably you know very wise counsel The I mean this area that YouTube are getting into and and Netflix and and the various streaming sites um, and then you look at the area of kind of the smart TV and how that's uh, developing. And I think it seems to be the broadcasters are, are 
blocking, or if not blocking, but certainly are making it difficult for the TV manufacturers uh, to to go down, uh, I suppose, a certain route because the means of distribution of, of television is changing so rapidly. Uh, so you have maybe Samsung out there. There's always rumours that Apple are about to bring out a, a, a TV set. Uh, but is that an issue that in terms of broadcasters trying to protect their patch and their means of distribution, their traditional means? No, I mean, I mean, there's there's a huge. I mean, there, there has to be a massive. Uh, there is a massive change taking place. I mean, the, the the biggest change essentially is that you know we no longer watch TV at set times during the day um, through a schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, that is probably you know we're only I would imagine you know four or five years away from that idea being completely redundant, and that essentially almost everything bar the sport, news and sport yeah. will be on demand. So mm-hmm. you you'll because it already is for the mass majority of people. You watch you know TV and content like that matches your um, lifestyle and your timing as opposed to the other way around. So, uh, you know, there are two ways of looking at it. Yes, does, you know, do these new technologies pose challenges for traditional broadcasters? Absolutely. But there are also incredible opportunities, you know, and the whole viewing experience, particularly with, um, you know, the idea of the second screen and having a a mobile device or a laptop or a tablet or all three while you're watching TV enhances the experience. So, you know, it's a a difficult time um, for broadcast media, particularly trying to get the revenue model right. But there's tremendous opportunity. We've never had this kind of opportunity, really. And I think it's probably a very exciting time to be there, too. I, I certainly agree with you that it enhances the experience. Mrs. Kenny looks over and says, you're not even watching that television. And I say, no, I, I am. And I'm looking at the uh, at, at tweets coming through as well. Just just thinking on that on that YouTube, uh, as you say, going to the subscription base versus the advertising fund, not unlike what HBO did in, in, in television. I've been watching this program. I don't know if you've seen it in recent weeks over the United States of, of television uh, on Saturday nights on BBC Two, where they're looking at how TV shows have evolved. But very much that was uh, the, the HBO model that all of a sudden you can take risks because you're based on a subscription model in television rather than an advertising model. Yeah, I mean, like Netflix, uh, I think one of the things that an awful lot of people were extremely interested in um, was the, uh, the, the, the idea that um, these kind of companies would start producing their own content. Um, and they've done that. I mean, the House of Cards is probably a really, really good example um, of that experiment. I mean, the, apparently the show cost $100 million to make. Um, it had absolute Hollywood A-list stars in it. And the difference was that in the past, what could happen was a pilot episode of a show could be produced, it could be aired, and you could see what the reaction was like. And if it was positive, then you could commission the rest of it. Whereas in the case of House of Cards, you kind of had to take a punt, essentially. They they commissioned um, 13 episodes and all were available straight away. And that proved to be extremely successful because that's how people want stuff now. They don't want to have to wait a week to get the next episode of something. They want to be able to sit down and watch it almost like a a very long feature film. Um, And that's something that I think um, traditional broadcasters are looking at as well and seeing how can that be incorporated into the way that they're producing content. Uh, we've had a few responses on 4D printing. Yes, 4D printing exists. Don't be so dismissive. 4D printing is training materials to build themselves. That sounds like the start of the Terminator series of movies to me. Um, and also, no wind up. Uh, look it up on YouTube. I think that's James again uh, who, who who's on. So uh, we will have to research that. Uh, just briefly, uh, before we finish, Stephen, apparently um, 80% of employees now are spending about an hour who have, uh, who use social media are spending an hour or so a day at work. Yeah, this this is a, a report that came out um, 
I think William Fry did uh, did some research at a legal firm in Dublin around this. I think in lots of ways, you know, there's no real major surprises around this. I mean, social media now has become such an integral part of, of how we do business for a lot of companies. Um, so I'm sure that there will be um, tomorrow morning employers kind of um, showing this around the office and saying, look, you know, you should be spending so much time on Facebook or YouTube or um, on Twitter. But quite often it can, um, it can, you know, a lot of the studies have shown that it makes employees more productive and that it can enhance the, the work experience for them. And I mean, obviously, I, I would be an advocate of it. Um, but I think that if it's used correctly and if you if you trust your employees to um, to produce the goods for you, then allowing social media in the office can only be a good thing, really not a bad thing. Well, if the boss is in my office tomorrow and sees social media on my screen, I can assure him it's the Air Twitter account, nothing else that's up on screen. Uh, but thanks for joining us, uh, Stephen O'Leary, media analyst with O'Leary, O'Leary Analytics uh, for our tech slot uh, on uh, this Monday evening. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.